kneel before Zod. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to a very special Vintage Video Patreon pick, where our patrons at the $100 tier are invited to request any pre-80s title they'd like for a custom review from the Vintage Video team, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today, Justin Aylett has asked us to review Oliver. Released December 10th, 1968, it was written by Vernon Harris with lyrics from Lionel Bart, from the original novel by Charles Dickens, directed by Carol Reed, and released by Columbia Pictures. In February of 1837, the first installment of Charles Dickens' popular serial Oliver Twist, or The Parish Boy's Progress, was published in a magazine called Bentley's Miscellany. New chapters posted each month until the 52nd and 53rd chapters finished the story in April of 1839, more than two years later. Even at the time of its first publication, Dickens's descriptions of Fagin, referred to only as the Jew for most of the serial's narration, drew accusations of anti-Semitism, which Dickens was made to answer for. He was quick to deny harboring any prejudice against the Jewish people and even corrected the oversight mid-serial, referring to Fagin mostly by name from chapter 39 on to the end of the story. And you can even see in the book that suddenly he's calling him Fagin in the second half. At which point the serial was compiled into Dickens' second novel entitled simply Oliver Twist. It tells the story of a young orphan boy who was ejected from a workhouse in his childhood and tries to make a life for himself in 1830s London with the help of the artful Dodger, a young pickpocket, and Fagin, their elderly professor of crime. In the years between its publication and tonight's iteration, the story was adapted to film many times, most notably a silent version in 1922 starring Lon Chaney as Fagin and TV's Uncle Fester Jackie Coogan as the orphan boy Oliver. In 1948, David Lean directed Alec Guinness as Fagin, a performance which leaned unfortunately heavily into the anti-Semitic tropes with which Dickens had accidentally imbued the character. Lionel Bart adapted the novel into a musical entitled Oliver, which premiered on June 30th of 1960 in London and was a literal overnight success, having recouped its entire production budget with the opening night's ticket sales. You realize that everybody could not see your air quotes on accidentally, right? I think it was pretty clear. <laughs> Bart was a unique composer in that he could not read music and composed his melodies by singing them to a trained pianist who would transcribe the notes for him. Michael Caine said that he auditioned for the stage version and was disappointed not to get the part of Bill Sykes and showcase his authentic Cockney accent. When the show made its way across the pond to Broadway, the part of the artful Dodger was played by Davy Jones of the Monkees, who landed a Tony nomination for Best Featured Actor in a Musical in 1963. The same Broadway production also collected nominations for Best Musical, Book, and Score. Later in life, Lionel Bart fell on hard times and foolishly sold his rights to the Oliver musical to Max Bygraves for a measly 350 pounds. Bygraves turned around and sold the same rights for 250,000 pounds. When the live show was revived in the 90s, a now bankrupt Lionel Bart was voluntarily granted a percentage of the production royalties because oh, they were like, nice. you deserve this. You made all this. Columbia Pictures was quickly on the prowl for the rights to a film adaptation, intending to cast Peter Sellers in the part of Fagin. Another production house, Romulus Films, owned by John and James Wolfe, entered into a bidding war, and Sellers and playwright Bart both threatened to walk if Romulus won the rights. 
Romulus did win the rights, and true to his word, Sellers stepped away, but Bart stuck around to shepherd his baby to an acceptable adaptation. Romulus announced director Brian Forbes at the helm. Bart was making things difficult almost immediately, insisting they get Sellers back on board as Fagan, and suggesting Barbara Streisand or Anne Bancroft for the Nancy role. Romulus heads John and James Wolfe's later negotiated a shared distribution deal with Columbia. When Forbes quit the project, James Wolfe flew to Los Angeles in an effort to sign British director Lewis Gilbert to the project, but before their meeting, Wolfe had a massive heart attack and died in his hotel room at the Beverly Hills Hotel at the ripe old age of 46. Jeez. John Wolfe stepped into more of a leadership role for the rest of the production and attached Sir Carol Reed in the director's chair. Carol Reed did his best to keep Bart away from set to avoid major interference. Reed's first choice for the role of Nancy was actually recurring Bond songstress Shirley Bassey, but the Columbia bosses didn't think audiences were ready for a black Nancy and suggested instead Shaney Wallace, who came equipped with another authentic Cockney accent. Unsubstantiated rumors were published that Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor had been cast as Bill and Nancy, but obviously that didn't happen. Critics have argued that Georgia Brown, who played the part in the West End production, should have been invited back to reprise the role, and Brown herself blamed Fagin actor Ron Moody, who performed with her as Fagin on the West End, and with whom she did not get along. She was like, you sabotage this for me, you're the reason I'm not in the movie. Moody didn't even want to play Fagin in the stage version, because the character is so much meaner in the book. When the time came to cast the film Fagin, Moody was only considered after Peters, Sellers, and O'Toole turned it down. Also on the studio shortlist were Manchurian candidate Lawrence Harvey and Dick Van Dyke, potentially opposite Julie Andrews as Nancy for a mini Mary Poppins reunion. Moody based his Fagin on British comedian-slash-magician Tommy Cooper. Jack Wilde was old enough now to be cast as the artful Dodger after having played another of Fagin's boys in the London production. When transitioning to the film performance of the character, Moody toned down his Yiddish pronunciations because they were not accurate to a Jewish Londoner of the time and they didn't fit a filmed format the same as on stage. Mark Lester was cast from a pool of between 2,000 and 5,000 boys, depending on the source you cite, as Oliver. Aside from his angelic features, I'm not sure how they settled on Lester specifically, since by all accounts he was a terrible actor, dancer, and singer. In fact, he couldn't even stay in rhythm with the songs, and all of his singing is actually dubbed over by Kathy Green, daughter of the film's music arranger Johnny Green, after he deemed Lester, quote, tone-deaf and arrhythmic. That's really weird. Yeah. I, I was also going to say, I don't know, I thought his singing was fine. Right, it, it yeah. Wasn't, yeah. It wasn't his singing. It wasn't him. <laughs> uh, you know what? They probably had the painting done up already. It's like, which one of these kids they're, looks they're like definitely this person. <laughs> Lester wasn't even allowed to play with the other children on set because the slightest physical exertion changed his entire complexion and they'd have to sit around for 15 minutes waiting for his rosy cheeks to fade. Oliver Reed was adamant that he did not come to the part of Bill Sykes by way of nepotism, and he was required, as any other actor would be, to audition and submit a screen test to his uncle, director Carol Reed. He was actually first recommended for the part by producer John Wolfe, who had no idea the director and actor were related. The film was shot entirely at Shepperton Studios, and all the sets were constructed original for the film, explaining a budget of over $10 million. The same sets would be reused later for the production of future Dickens adaptation 1970's Scrooge, and later still in Terry Gilliam's Jabberwocky. Oliver was the first British film to utilize video assist, which involved a small video camera mounted above the film camera to approximate the camera's perspective and give the director an idea of the coverage he had. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. With the film's release, Random House published a book of photos from the set that included scenes removed from the film, including one with Oliver's mother and the doctor who delivered him, played by Veronica Page and Henry Kay, respectively. 
The film was nominated for 11 Oscars, Best Actor for Ron Moody, Best Supporting Actor for Jack Wilde, Adapted Screenplay, Cinematography, Costume Design, and Editing, and won five for Best Sound, Score, Art Direction, Director, and Best Picture, 1969. It was the first Best Picture with a rating from the MPAA, and as a result, the first and so far last G-rated Best Picture. Amusingly- oh, wait, wait a minute. Didn't Beauty and the Beast win? Is it not no, G-rated? No, it was nominated. It was nominated. didn't win. Yeah. Okay. What won that year? I don't remember. What year was that? 93, 94? 94, I think. 94 would have been Forrest Gump. That sounds about right. Amusingly, it was followed by the first and so far last X-rated Best Picture for Midnight Cowboy. The Best Picture Oscar wouldn't go to another musical until 2002's Chicago, and the next British film to win the statue was Chariots of Fire, which we covered recently with our 300th regular episode. It was uh, 91. So, Unforgiven? Dances with Wolves. Oh, Unforgiven was 90? 90. I think Unforgiven was 90. Or 92. 92. What was 90? Silence of the Lambs? That was 91, wasn't it? No, she just no, said... No, I just said Dance with the Wolves. Oh. 1990 Best Picture was Driving Miss Daisy. That sounds we're hilarious. really bad at this 93? Best Picture thing. <laughs> no, 93 was Schindler's List. Oh, we're, we're going for the year after. Yeah, so that's the thing with the Oscars is that it's... The number is the year after the movie came yeah. out. Yeah. At the Oscar ceremony, Jack Albertson had won in the same category with Jack Wilde's Artful Dodger and took the boy aside to confess that he felt Wilde's was the better performance. After winning the Best Director Oscar, Carol Reed was approached by Charlton Heston, with whom he'd collaborated on The Agony and the Ecstasy, and Heston gifted him a copy of Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist with an authentic, handwritten letter from the author inside. Oh. That's pretty cool. Do not sell this. Yeah. <laughs> Carol Reed. How did he know I would exist? He died 100,000 years ago. After this musical version, the two best-known adaptations are probably the animated musical Oliver and Company and then Roman Polanski's 2005 adaptation, but I'll discuss changes from the book and the other four versions of the film at the end. The only version I'd ever seen prior to this one was definitely Oliver and Company. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> yeah. the one that, that people our age would have seen, but I'm saying there are, there are four other known versions, two before and two after, that people still talk about there's also a lot of connections between this and uh all dogs go to heaven uh which i feel is, is there well it, it it deals with a crook using a child yeah to uh one to pick pockets that's a common trope though isn't it but yeah. to, to be fair i always got those two movies mixed up because i didn't really i didn't really know the story of oliver twist before and they're both don bluth right yeah is don bluth really well, no, 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 no oliver and company no sorry oliver and company, and company is, is disney Okay. Yeah. But yeah, all, all dogs go to heaven is Don Bluth. But well, Don Bluth worked for Disney also. But. He did, but, but, but he not at long, that time. Yeah, not yeah. at that time. But like, I always got those two confused because like they did have similar things happening. And in they the both movies. had Dom DeLuise. And, and they both and they both <laughs> yeah. have you know anthropomorphic animals on the yeah. street, you know, getting by. That makes sense. They both had street savoir faire. <laughs> this might be the first film we've covered with an actual overture, a full medley of the entire instrumental score over black. Next, we are treated to intricately illustrated scenes of London at the time our story takes place. The title card, Oliver, appears with an exclamation mark as a shorthand indicator that this is a musical adaptation. That's just a thing that people do. They put an exclamation mark and it means, we're singing the title. Okay. These illustrations were provided by artist Graham Barkley. 
Aside from depicting London in general, the illustrations don't actually portray moments from the film, as you might expect, the one exception being the final illustration of a workhouse for paupers and orphans. We cut inside where a row of children power a mill with their feet. Grains are ground to powder by their efforts. Okay, it reminds me of the the uh, lift from uh, Fury Road. Sure, yeah. It's got, got all the kids up on the up on the thing cranking it grinding it away yeah mr bumble the beetle leads the governors through the food hall and once they've cleared the room a bell is rung to summon the orphans to their daily gruel the first words we hear in the film are the lyrics to the opening song food glorious food the children all fantasize about the meals they wish they were having Uh, the opening to this song, like to me, sounds like the opening of a Pink Floyd song. Yeah, totally. Like it feels like another brick in the wall yeah. moment. Yeah. They even see some of the good stuff walked past them to the governors, while workhouse employees ladle out big slimy bowls of gruel. Kids watch the fancy meal through a window until the governors wave the urchins away. We hear Oliver's voice in this song, and it doesn't seem to fit his body because, as we mentioned, he's been dubbed. I don't recall if the phrase food glorious food appears in the novel, but I did notice it in one of the title cards from the 1922 silent film version of the story. When Mr. Bumble clacks his scepter against the ground, the kids very quickly shovel all the gruel into their mouths. At one table, the kids draw straws to determine who will be sent to ask for more. Oliver walks out and carries a bowl to Mr. Bumble. Wait, Oliver draws the long straw? Yeah, and Which, that's the one that gets him in trouble? Uh, Usually the short straw yeah, is the problem. I, I didn't quite understand this this game. But yeah. it seemed like they had played before. Like, they all knew what was going on. Right. But the guy seems awful surprised when Oliver asks for yeah. more. I think he's this surprised every time. <laughs> that, that's why he's so furious, because we, we just went over this yesterday. <laughs> Oliver walks out carrying a bowl to Mr. Bumble before asking the fateful question. Please, sir. I want some more. What? Please, sir. I want some... More? More? Mr. Bumble is so furious at this child's indignation that he orders Oliver apprehended and all the kids join in the chase, even though they sent him to ask the question. Yeah, they're like kicking him under the table to stop him. Yeah, I don't, I don't get why everyone hates Oliver, but this is just like That's one just of those a jail thing. Yeah, yeah. It, this is one of those movies where everyone hates the main character for no reason. Yeah, but it's also like a Stanford prison experiment where it's like I'm not the one being victimized, so go ahead, beat him up. Mr. Bumble asks the boy's name and learns this is Oliver Twist, who he named himself. In other versions of the story, specifically the 1922 and 2005 versions, Bumble only gave him his surname, something he assigned to each new child in alphabetical order like hurricanes. <laughs> How comes an orphan to have any name at all? I invented it. You, Mr. Bumble? I, Mr. Shabberry. I name all our foundlings in alphabetical order. The last was S. Swubble, I named him. This was a T. Twist, I named him. Next one as comes will be Unwin, and the next Vilkins. Now I've got names ready all through the alphabet, right up to Z. Why, you're quite a literary character, sir. Well, well. He drags Oliver around the workhouse by the ear. 
The first time actor Harry Seacombe went to grab Mark Lester's ear and gave it a good tug, it came off in his hand. <gasps> a prank on the Mr. Bumble actor perpetrated no. by the crew. <laughs> he considers reporting the boy to the governors, but realizes it will only get him in trouble. They will lay the blame on the one who named him. I think that the force to pull an ear off, though, is surprisingly low. Yeah, mm. that's why it was a believable prank. Seven pounds, seven pounds of pressure will pull an ear off. So that's not true because I picked Jack up by just his ear. <laughs> <laughs> he weighs more than seven pounds. He's gotta. So uh, Mike Tyson only needed seven pounds of bite pressure. That's right. Instead, he takes to the streets looking for someone to buy the child. One four. then only seven guineas how much that or thereabouts of the entire cast mr bumble has the most impressive voice and it's very fun to hear him haggling with men on the street in his operatic vibrato that's four pounds three and four slightly under four guineas lumped down from seven guineas three pounds ten shillings three pounds what sir certainly not the price comes down over the course of the song as the weather turns from cold to colder and an undertaker takes oliver off bumble's hands the undertaker's wife is less convinced oliver is worth the eventual three guinea price the undertaker demands a week's free trial using oliver as a coffin follower for children's funerals <laughs> it's perfect plan we cut to Oliver, serving that purpose, dressed all in black with a top hat, leading a carriage down the street. The workhouse children laugh at him through a gate, even though he isn't eating gruel with them anymore. Yeah, again. He got promoted, you idiots. <laughs> Another employee of The Undertaker's, Noah Claypole, tips his cap to Bumble as they pass by, suggesting he also passed through this orphanage as a kid. Later in the day, Noah starts making fun of Oliver's dead mother until the kid loses his patience and attacks the much older boy. A regular right down bad and she was... What did you say? And it's a good thing she died when she did because she'd been in prison doing hard labor like <laughs> The Undertaker's wife has to drag Oliver off of Noah and eventually they trap him in a coffin and sit on it. Noah is sent to Bumble to request a refund. When Bumble shows up, he's annoyed that Oliver's not frightened of the man and blames The Undertaker's wife for feeding Oliver meat. This would never have happened if you kept him on gruel. I'll be glad to give you the recipe. The Undertaker, Mr. Sourberry, arrives home thoroughly intoxicated. Oliver is relocated to the basement, and the Undertaker drunkenly lays down in the coffin for a nap. It's really quite comfortable. In a basement full of coffins, Oliver sings a song about where love is. <laughs> where is love? Lester's tears in this scene were reportedly conjured via diced onions when the child actor himself couldn't summon them. When Oliver leans against a grate in the wall at the end of the song, it slides loose from the frame and he runs away. We see him trudging through rain on the side of a muddy road 42 miles from London. He tries to hitch a ride on a passing carriage that doesn't stop for him. Later, he buries himself in hay on the side of the road to survive a cold night. The next day, a man towing vegetables to market is asleep at the rains, so Oliver hitches a ride in a basket of cabbage. He emerges from the produce when they reach London proper, and we get our first look at the incredible stage built entirely for the film. Multiple city blocks of mid-19th century London. Full-scale operational train tracks. It's crazy. Why? <laughs> I don't know why, but it looks great. Yeah. 
Oliver notices the artful Dodger walking through town picking a target. They split some stolen bread rolls, and Oliver explains that he's come here to make his fortune. When Dodger learns that Oliver has no money or place to stay, he offers up free lodgings. He even sings a song to make Oliver feel welcome in their shared living situation. Consider yourself at home. Consider yourself one of the family. I've taken to you so strong. It's clear we're going to get along. A quartet of dancing bobbies pass them during the song, and Dodger and Oliver hide from the men as they continue singing. In a back alley, the boys walk directly through a freshly bisected rack of ribs behind a large meat company, and then they watch a troop of men dancing and tossing more cuts of meat around and occasionally rolling over the floor with them. Yeah, this is a little unhygienic. This this is getting a lot of dirt on this meat. Well, you're going to cook it. Yeah, I guess. I guess it's okay to just put dirt on your food and then cook the dirt. There you go. Gives it a nice earthy flavor. <laughs> We see a whole team of dancing newsies off to work first thing in the morning. Dodger is roped into a dance routine with a couple street performers, and they're interrupted by the screams of some nearby chimney sweep children. It seems that in the course of their work, their butts have caught on fire, and they drop down their chimneys and run across the street to cool their pants in water. The scale of the dance number grows and grows until nearly 150 costumed cast members are all dancing in the streets together, and it's really an incredible number so early in the film. This took three weeks to film completely for this I whole song. I believe it. That was... And I honestly, even just singing it back to myself in the car, I get goosebumps towards the end of this song. I just, like, I have a very strong emotional connection to this movie and every song in it. And I'm also a sucker for key changes and almost every single song has a key change. So coming at this from the perspective of both not really knowing the story of Oliver and never having seen this before... I was certain that this was all very elaborate to contrast the fact that something really bad was going to happen to him by bringing him to Fagin. Fagin. Yeah. Which I these guys actually end up b- being really like yeah. earnestly like willing to take that, care of him. That's and help part him. of what I love so much about it is that this is not this is not a false invitation. This is literally like I want to help you. We're in the same situation. Let's work together. 100% not what I was yeah. expecting after this. I'm just like, oh, they're saying this, but it's not really what he means. Yeah. He's he's conning him. Yeah, that's what it seems like. Well, and I think that that's more what's happening in the book. In the original yes, story. Yes, definitely. I, I, I Fagan is much more manipulative in the book. This song was actually written for use in a film called Tommy the Tariador, but Bart took it back to use it in his Oliver stage musical. When the song ends, Dodger leads Oliver through a hole in a wall to the sunken, rotting back alleys of London. It's all rickety wooden staircases and swampy trenches, with giant beams holding up the city structures from the back so they don't fall over into the back alley. Oliver is led to a top-floor room full of children smoking and playing cards. They all go silent when he arrives. Very quickly, Oliver is relieved of his possessions by the other boys and has to wrestle them back. Fagin has just cooked up a plate of sausages for the boys, which is the same meal we see the team of thieves splitting at the start of Oliver and Company 20 years later. That's true. How are those sausages coming, Fagin? Three minutes, Turkish. <laughs> Unfortunately, the sausages don't seem to be the best quality. These sausages are moldy! Shut up and drink your gin! <laughs> it's a fun thing to say to a seven-year-old. Well, I mean, in, in, in retrospect, it makes sense. Like yeah, the gin will kill whatever yeah. is growing in here. Despite six months of pre-production rehearsals, Mark Lester said he didn't even recognize Ron Moody in his Fagin makeup on set. 
Oliver keeps trying to guess the nature of their business and supposes from the hanging kerchiefs that this is a laundry for a second, but there's nowhere to wash anything. They're just hanging. Fagin explains if you want to make money, you have to take it from people, and he gives Oliver a demonstration. He loads himself up with valuables and then sings a song about the importance of thievery while the kids steal the items back one at a time. In this life, one thing counts in the bank, large amounts. I'm afraid these don't grow on trees. You've got to pick a pocket or two, you've got to pick a pocket or two, boy. You got to pick a pocket or two. There's also a running gag here where Fagin tries to twirl a watch into his pocket and misses every time. But when the kid gets it right, he looks really annoyed. He's like, dang it, why can't I do that? He also brings up someone named Bill Sykes in the song that got his start with petty thievery the way they should. We also get a brief centaur moment where Fagin walks with a kid under the back of his coat as a second pair of legs. Do you guys recall the last time we saw this gag? Two pairs of legs walking under the same coat? Oh, I do. Um, it was the Marty Feldman one with the, yep. the with God. Um, that we can never remember mm-hmm. the name of. In God We Trust? That's what yep. it's called. Wow, good job. By the end of the song, all of Fagin's possessions have been stolen by separate kids, and they all wave what they took in the air. Put them all back in the book! All of them! Fagin tells Oliver to follow Dodger's example if he wants to be successful like their friend Bill Sykes. He invites Oliver to practice his pickpocketing skill by taking a scarf from his coat. It takes him a while to get a grip on it, and once he does, it's like a magician's scarf tied end-to-end with several more, and eventually Oliver is yanking them from across the room and falls down some stairs with it. Fagin sends the boys to sleep and finds half a basket for Oliver to lay down in. Once everyone seems asleep, Fagin sneaks out the door and then one of the boys locks it behind him. Fagin heads out to a nearby crowded bar looking for Bill Sykes. He spots Sykes' dog first, Bullseye, an ugly bull terrier. He rushes up to Bill Sykes, as played by Oliver Reed, to conduct some business. Apparently this dog spent a long time in makeup each day to appear as downtrodden as it does in the film. I just assumed it was a messed up dog, so Mm. whoever did the makeup did a good job. I've never seen a dog that had to wear so much makeup. (laughs) I thought you meant they did a lot of makeup to make the dog sad. (laughs) No. No, it's, it looks like it's all scarred and fucked up on its, its face. I, I thought it was messed yeah. up too, Like, but that's a, that's all makeup. That's yeah. that's kind of crazy. They even taped down his tail so that his tail wouldn't keep wagging and giving away that he was really happy on set the whole time. Oh, that's hilarious. Sykes seems to be stealing on a much higher level than Fagin's boys, probably doing home invasions instead of picking pockets. Most impressively, he hands over a tiara and then a bunch of jewelry, silverware, and an enormous ruby. Well, he, he he's pulling like all this stuff out of all of his pockets. Like, yeah. he, like he even has like a like a gravy boat. Like yeah, a, it's all just in his coat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's amazing he wasn't clanging as he was walking down the street with all of it. So I guess he doesn't fence his own stuff. He he requires- no Fagin is the fence. Fagin so, is the fence, and okay. he only taught these people to steal so that they don't know how to make money on their own without him. Now was Sykes. Was he one of Fagin's yes. boys? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And he graduated like, to home invasions. I feel like, but he's not currently like living amongst them. No, he no. has his own place. Yeah. But he still returns to Fagin because Fagin is, Fagin is good Where at- Where money comes from. Yeah. yeah. Sykes expects payment immediately, but Fagin promises to pay later and reminds Bill that his girlfriend Nancy is waiting for him at the bar. 
Nancy has a big smile on her face when she sees him and sings a song about how happy she is with him. If you don't mind having to go without things, it's a fine life. It's a fine life. Though it ain't all jolly old pleasure writings, it's a fine life. It's a fine life. When you've got someone to love, you forget your care and strife. Let the prudes look down on us, let the wide world frown on us, it's a fine, fine life! The song is loaded with references to the abuse that Nancy suffers at Bill's hand, most blatantly with a reference to her occasional black eyes. You can always cover one till he blacks the other one, but you don't it's more like she's trying to convince herself than right. us. That and it's all sung with a big good. smile. And yeah. even her friends in the background are like, yeah, just keep smiling. It's great. Before the song even ends and without having said a word to her, Sykes turns around to leave already and she follows him away. Back in his hidey hole, Fagin is blown away that the ruby seems to be genuine and he plucks a small jewelry box from a hidden compartment in a brick wall to hide the gem. Fagin explains out loud to his pet owl that the jewelry is meant as a retirement fund, but he's startled when he notices Oliver watching as well. To get the surprised reaction from Oliver watching, the director stood directly behind camera and then suddenly pulled a rabbit out of his pocket to catch Mark Lester off guard. It's just like, look, a rabbit. Smile, kid. Make a face. They, re- they really, really tried hard to get this yeah. kid to act. <laughs> For every shot with the owl in it, its eyes are pointed fixedly at the director, Carol Reed, off camera, because it would spin its face to look at him the second he shouted action at the beginning of each take. So anytime you see the owl, it's looking right at the director. Oh, that's funny. I I thought you were going to tell me, like, similarly, he pulled a rabbit out of his hat to get the (laughs) owl to look at him. He pulled a rabbit out of the owl. (laughs) Well, it's like, here's your lunch. Yeah. After they wrapped on the owl, Carol Reed and his wife adopted it, but then they had to donate it to a nearby zoo after it littered their home with the bloody remains of its live meals. There you go. <laughs> just leave corpses <laughs> everywhere. The next morning, Nancy is cooking Bill breakfast, and he says he'll have it for dinner because he's trying to sleep in. He sends her to collect his money from Fagin today. On her way out, she asks for confirmation he loves her. Of course I do. I live with you, don't I? So maybe this is her place, and he's just <laughs> sleeping in her bed. As she walks through Fagin's place, Oliver is quickly enamored and bows to her. Dodger is jealous of the attention she shows Oliver and offers her a carriage ride. Dodger snaps his fingers and a group of the boys pretend to be horses and carriage wheels with parasols so that Dodger can escort her around the room on an imaginary carriage ride. They launch into one of my favorite songs from the film where the boys tell Nancy what they would do for her. I'd do anything for you, dear. Anything for you mean everything to me i know that i'd go anywhere for your smile anywhere for your smile everywhere i'd see at some point in the song though the imaginary carriage collapses and it morphs into a song where nancy is telling oliver she'd do anything for him and then he's singing it to her Oh, plus uh, you're mispronouncing anything. It's anything. Anything. <laughs> anything. I, I was actually thinking that even in the track listing, it should be called anything because that's what they're always saying. The song gets louder and louder and more maniacal as Fagin struggles to manage his bookkeeping. Eventually, we see him throw down his pen and plug his ears to mask the noise. And just when you think his temper will burst, he leaps onto the dance floor with a parasol and a feather in his hair, and the song changes again so that now 
Dodger and the boys are singing to Fagin about all the things they'd do for him. Would you rob a shop? Anything. Would you risk the drop? Anything. Though your eyes go pop? Anything. When you come down plus. When the song ends, Nancy reminds Fagin that he owes Bill money and she's here to collect. Dodger tries to dig through Nancy's basket and she shoves him away before Fagin kicks him to the floor. What was that for? For getting caught. I was only practicing. Dodger tells Fagin he plans to take Oliver out on the streets today and Fagin gives Dodger strict instructions to keep the kids safe on his first day. He sings a song to the boys reminding them how much he cares for them all and that they're free to get to work but to please make it home safely each night. You can go back, be back soon. You can go back, bring back plenty of wallets full of cash. Don't want to see any trash. Whip them quick and be back soon. Only thick ones now, not empty. Get rich this afternoon. Be back soon. But I just love that in this song he's like, I love you, that's why I say cheerio, not goodbye. Like, he's just admitting, I love you guys, I care a lot about you, please come home. And later in the film, they make it clear that he feels terrible that other people have to do the stealing for him. He doesn't like making these kids do this stuff, and he's worried about them the whole time they're gone. Upon their arrival in town, the boys are caught quickly, pilfering from a candy cart, and sent walking. They spot a rich-looking man in a top hat and a blue coat. When Dodger lifts the man's wallet, he notices at the last second and spins around to find only Oliver standing there, completely unprepared for the moment. The man assumes Oliver took his wallet and asks for it back, but Oliver has nothing to return. A chase ensues and the police are involved. Dodger leads the cops down a wrong alley and tries to hide Oliver in a stack of meat, but a butcher finds him just as the cops show up and the chase begins again. Oliver ends up climbing to the roof of a building and tightrope walking the bridge of train tracks. From the perspective of people on the street, Oliver seems to be hit by an oncoming train, but after it passes, he stands up safe again, and they all breathe a sigh of relief below. It's clear they want the boy apprehended, but they don't wish any physical harm on him. A pair of men grab Oliver and confirm with the man in the blue coat that this is the kid he was chasing. Back at Fagin's joint, he shakes the Dodger, demanding answers. Why didn't you look after him? Why didn't you bring him back with you? How can I help it? Fagin also has a confusing side chat with Sykes, who doesn't see the big deal. Fagin seems to think Oliver is a squealer and that he'll rat out the whole operation, which will cost Fagin his livelihood, and it might cost Sykes a good deal more somehow. Maybe if the criminals up the food chain from them go unfed, Sykes might face retribution, but I don't know why it would ever be a bigger deal for Sykes. Well, because I feel like Sykes is, while he's great at stealing, he's not as clever at turning that into money. Yeah, so he's just saying if if Fagin gets in trouble that Sykes won't be able to make yeah, a living. Correct. Nancy offers to go to court and listen in to see if Oliver incriminates any of them. In the courthouse, the judge ducks under his podium to steal a sip of liquor before slipping out the rule books of life. Oliver is so small and the judge is so drunk that he doesn't even see the child at first. Even though the victim in this case hasn't even pressed any charges, the boy is sentenced to three months hard labor for his inability to explain the whereabouts of his parents or his current living situation. The man in the blue coat is furious to see the boy treated so shamefully, and a witness comes forward from the back of the room to belatedly confess that he saw the crime take place, and it wasn't Oliver at all, but two other boys. Two other boys stole Mr. Brownlow's wallet. This child had nothing to do with it. But sentence has been passed. Hasn't it? <laughs> like the judge is so drunk he doesn't know how far they are into the process. Nancy returns to Fagin and the boys with the good news. Oliver kept his mouth shut and the case was dismissed. The man in the blue coat offers to take Oliver home with him to look after the boy. 
Fagin instructs Dodger to follow the carriage away so they know where Oliver ends up. So this is another, well, what I was mentioning earlier about All Dogs Go to Heaven, is that they're trying to steal uh, wallets from people on the street and using yeah. uh, uh, God, Anne-Marie as a distraction. And she gets in trouble. She gets in trouble, and then the, fa- the couple takes her home. Right. Which actually, the voice of Anne-Marie didn't, didn't uh, he try to adopt her? Did Don Bluth? Don Bluth tried yeah, to adopt yeah, well, her? Yeah, they tried to get her out of that So that's a very situation. similar situation. She was like living the actual character's life almost. Yeah. But unfortunately, she didn't even live to see that movie. We fade from this carriage ride to an intermission card and another overture for the second half. We fade back in to Oliver asleep in a big bed in a nice home. A maid enters the room and opens the curtains and a window. Sing-songy voices drift in the window from the marketplace below. At first, it's a single woman selling flowers to nobody, but she's joined quickly by milkmaids and then strawberries, eggs, knife grindings, etc. This song is pretty long and yeah. doesn't provide a lot to the story, but because I watched this movie on loop as a kid, it it hits me right in the heart the whole time. Like it just the voices echoing in my head. I was just like, oh my god, I forgot this song, and it's all coming back to me as they sing it. Well, I figure I figure it's one of those songs that like they just had intermission. People are still coming back, and right? They're, this way, they won't miss any plot. But they're kind of coming into like fanfare and. But it's also such an expensive sequence. Yeah. Oliver watches the chorus of voices from his balcony and then adds a verse of his own. Bloomsbury Square was recreated in its entirety within Shepperton Studios for this sequence, and it took a full six weeks to film. The entire park in the middle, all the buildings, the whole way around it, were completely built for this sequence. That's crazy. It, yeah, it does yeah. seem kind of excessive. Halfway through the song, separate classes of boys and girls march into the park together and dance for a bit until the boys all push the girls into a fountain and then yeah. they all cry. <laughs> the song wraps up with a marching band. I would have liked for there to have been a willow tree in this park in the middle because when he's singing the song earlier, he says, Is it the willow tree that I've been of? And it would be like, oh, he's remembering the willow tree from outside the home that he used to live in but doesn't remember yet. The ending of the song is punctuated with a punch zoom on Sykes and Dodger watching Oliver on the balcony from a nearby park. Fagin and Sykes pressure Nancy to kidnap the boy from his current protectors. Fagin implies that Sykes would certainly be hung if Oliver ever decided to sell them out. When Nancy repeatedly refuses to go and take the boy back, Sykes slaps her hard to the ground. Wallace almost badly injured herself in the fall here, narrowly missing cracking her head on a bench. Later, Nancy leaves Fagin's place alone and sings a song about how, cruel as he is, Sykes needs her love to survive and she will stay to provide it. As long as he needs me, oh yes, he does need me. Do you remember the last time? (laughs) We had a song that a woman sang about a man needing her. Yeah. 
featuring heavily featuring he needs me just oh you're you're asking me yeah it was an olive oil saying it and pop that's right and all at once i knew i knew at once i knew he needed me until the day i die i won't know why i knew he needed me we cut to a boy knocking on mr brownlow's door that's the man in the blue coat to deliver some books. When Brownlow mentions that he has books to return, Oliver offers to return them for the man since he knows where the bookshop is. Brownlow agrees and even sends along a five pound note expecting 10 shillings change on a debt he owes the bookshop owner. When he gives Oliver these instructions, he is shaken by an observation and we see his POV zooming into a painting on the wall of a woman with similar features to Oliver. She's a very pretty lady, isn't she, sir? Yes. Pretty is a strong word, I might have gone with giraffe-like. <laughs> Somehow the neck on this painting looks two feet long. <laughs> I don't get why this wouldn't have been a painting of a normal human-shaped person with Oliver's face but long hair. Well, I think it does look a lot like Oliver. It is. It is just Oliver's face with long hair. It, it totally is. So is that, that's what you were saying earlier, Richard, that they yeah. bothered to cast him because they painted this first and yeah. then just walked around and they're like, yeah, this one matches. Let's do this one. Which is probably also why they cut the scene with his mother earlier when she didn't look like this painting. <laughs> Do you see a likeness to the lad? But that's your niece, isn't it? That's what I mean. Wasn't she the girl who... who ran away? The man playing chess with Brownlow assumes that neither of them will ever see the boy again. All Brownlow knows about Oliver is that he was born in a workhouse, so he sets about writing them a letter for more information. In the market, Oliver is distracted by a Punch and Judy puppet show long enough for Sykes and Nancy to get him there, and he explains to Nancy the task that Brownlow has assigned him. She wordlessly leads him away to a wagon where Sykes wraps him up and they steal the boy away. Fagin does his end-of-day inventory with the boys when Sykes kicks in the door to bring in Oliver. The boys and Fagin immediately relieve Oliver of all his personal effects again, including the books and the five-pound note. Fagin promises to lock the money away, but Sykes takes it for himself because he doesn't have to fence this. He's like, this is already cash. I can just take this and buy shit with it. I don't really understand if, if Fagin cares about him, why he went along with this. Like, I get that Sykes has ulterior motives, but... I think Fagin is worried that Oliver knows where he keeps all of his jewels, and that's his retirement. Hmm. And that somehow that's going to come back to ruin the end of his life. Okay. I suppose that makes sense. I Because that's not a part of every version of the story. And so I think that that is what they were leaning on heavily to be like, this is Fagin's motivation for getting the boy back, is his own retirement. But uh, in other versions where he's nasty, it's just... there. There's a very clear explanation in later versions oh, okay. that I'll cover okay. when we get to the other, the other incarnations. Oliver warns Sykes that Brownlow will come after him to get his money back, and Sykes tries to whip the boy with his belt, but Nancy and Fagin wrestle Oliver away from him. Nancy tells Sykes that if he dares lay a finger on Oliver, that she'll go to the cops and sell them all up the river herself. Do you know who you are? And what you are? You don't have to tell me! Which is the only hint in the whole film that we get that she's a prostitute, because otherwise you would think that she's just a barmaid that works downstairs at the bar. She leaves, and Sykes reminds Fagin that they need a plan in place if Oliver ever does rat on them. If he has, the little devil. <laughs> we sit down, we talk it over, we think it out, we decide upon a proper course of safe action, we stay calm! He's like screaming it. Sykes wraps his hands around Fagin's throat and makes it clear that neither of them will survive a leak to the police. 
When he leaves, Fagin reminds Dodger to keep Oliver safe. When the kids are all asleep, Fagin sings a song about reconsidering the life he's set for himself and one at a time dismissing all the alternatives. I'm reviewing the situation. Can a fella be a villain all his life? All the trials and tribulation. Better settle down and get myself a wife. And the wife would cook and sew for me and come for me and go for me and go for me and beg at me the finger she would wag at me the money she would take from me a misery she'd make from me. I think I'd better think it out again. In response to Mr. Brownlow's letter, Mr. Bumble and his wife have arrived to deliver a locket left at the workhouse among Oliver's effects that he inherited from the mother he lost in childbirth. Brownlow recognizes the locket that he gifted his niece on her 18th birthday. He's furious that they've waited until now to present the evidence and promises to have Bumble removed from his parochial office. Back at Bill and Nancy's place, she and Oliver watch Sykes pack for a job. Turns out, Bill has a job in mind and needs a small accomplice. He threatens to kill Oliver if he doesn't comply or resists too loudly. Nancy begs Bill not to use Oliver this way, but he takes the kid anyway. Later that day, Nancy rushes out to Brownlow's to warn him that Oliver is in danger. She promises to return Oliver to the man on London Bridge at midnight. She refuses to name the co-kidnapper before she leaves. Bill and Oliver sneak up to a home and Sykes cuts the screen out of a small pantry window. He shoves Oliver inside with instructions to unlock the front door, and he complies. Undoing the slide lock on the door, Oliver accidentally falls over and knocks a circular tray to the floor, making a loud enough noise to wake the homeowner who sicks his dogs on them. The man even fires a gun at the retreating burglars. And in other versions of the story, Oliver is shot here and spends time recovering back at Fagin's place, but that doesn't happen in this version. I was certain that the dog got shot at yeah. this point. Back at the bar, Nancy paces worriedly, but Fagin urges her to relax. Bill shows up and tells Fagin that Oliver screwed up the plan. Nancy tries to drag Oliver back to bed, but Sykes seems to sense her true intentions and asks her to leave him at the bar. The band in the bar starts playing Um Papa, and Nancy starts singing along with the hopes of corralling the entire bar into singing with her. Um Papa, Um Papa, there's a little ditty they're singing in the city, especially when they've been on the gin or the beer. If you've got the patience, your own imaginations will tell you just exactly what you want to hear. Um Papa, Um Papa, that's how it goes. Um Papa, Um Papa, everyone knows. They all suppose what they want to suppose when they hear Um Papa. Eventually, the crowd is loud and distracting enough that Nancy can collect Oliver again and sneak away, but Bill still notices just as she's leaving when Bullseye's barking gets his attention. Bill catches up with them just outside the bridge, within sight of Mr. Brownlow. He wrestles with Nancy for a moment, and the sound catches Brownlow's attention, but Bill drops her to the ground and bashes her repeatedly over the head with his shillelagh, which, as a kid, I always assumed was just a brutal beating because her legs are still kicking when the witnesses reach her. Yeah. But in most versions of the story, she is inarguably killed here. I assumed she was dead. Yeah, and and... It's clearer later when he's like, oh, what have you done? Like Fagin is realizing what's happened. But as a kid, I only know what I saw, which is she was still moving at the end. So she's just hurt. And they're all sad that he hurt her. Yeah. And I don't know what happened. Brownlow checks on Nancy while Bill escapes with Oliver and Bullseye. Oliver Reed is being very rough with young Mark Lester here. 
and having witnessed the attack just now, even Bullseye seems to have lost his trust in Bill Sykes. The dog runs away back toward Nancy, and Bill continues taking Oliver away. The crowd recognize Sykes' dog and follow him back to the murderer. Sykes drags Oliver up the stairs over the swampy back alley toward Fagin's place. When Bill arrives, soaked in blood and begging for money, Fagin gathers what has just happened. There's, there's blood on your coat. Where's Nancy? Bill? Bill Sykes? What did you do? What did you do? She won't beat on nobody no more. Bill takes all the money Fagin has on him before turning to run. Bullseye is leading an angry crowd right here, so Fagin rushes the boys out. Quick, boys! All of you! We're changing lodgings! When Sykes leaves again, he brings Oliver with him as a hostage. Sykes is heartbroken to see Bullseye has turned on him as the crowd climbs the stairs toward him. The support beams sink into the muddy stream and the whole platform collapses under them because there's too many people coming at the same time. Bill has to kick in the window of another building to keep himself from falling. Fagin is the last to abandon his post, and he pulls all the bricks out of the wall to retrieve his retirement fund. As he runs across a bridge, he trips and spills his entire life savings in jewels and gems into the brown sludge. And it's an amazing shot of all these gems hitting the surface and then just disappearing in the black ooze. He's like digging through it and he just can't get anything back. Sykes and Oliver come to another dead end on a platform out over an alley. There's a beam sticking straight out from above them, and Sykes makes a plan to hang a rope from the beam and then swing across to the next building. But when he can't climb up to hang the rope, he sends Oliver. Oliver gets the rope in place, and after a couple attempts, Sykes is able to swing fully across, but a man on the ground floor gets a shot off and hits Sykes before he can escape, and the man's body swings limply back and forth across the gap between the buildings. It looks like Oliver Reed cracks his ribs pretty hard against the platform he jumped from, but he's playing dead, so he can't, like, react to it. Yeah. But he hits it really hard. In the crowd below, Dodger seems to hang his head in mourning, but then we notice he's actually just spotting a man's wallet within reach, and he snatches it. Fagin is out on the street alone, walking in the light of an early morning sunrise, and starts reviewing the situation again, until the artful Dodger steps out to interrupt. He presents Fagin with the wallet he just snagged, and Fagin inspects the merchandise. I'm a situation. Once the villain, you're a villain to the end. Your light fingers. Your inspiration. What a team. Am I your partner? Or a friend. The two dance off into the sunrise. We dissolve to Brownlow, bringing Oliver back to his rightful home. We dip to black before another wide shot of the alley from the Consider Yourself song as credits roll. The end. That's Oliver. Um, from the novel, in the book we start with Oliver's birth to an anonymous woman who shows up at the workhouse. The biggest change from the novel to this adaptation is the removal of Oliver's half-brother Monks, who stands to inherit the entire family fortune in Oliver's absence. As the novel goes, Monks keeps an eye on Oliver the entire time and pays Fagin to keep the boy hidden mm. so that he can take the money. That makes sense. The musical wrote this character out because it was decided that Sykes is enough of a villain on his own. Fagin is a much more villainous character as well, with less of a personal interest in the well-being of his boys. At the novel's end, the Artful Dodger is arrested and imprisoned, and Fagin is hung. Ew. 
In the play, at the end of the stage play version, Fagin sings his reprise of reviewing the situation and then decides against a life of crime. So the ending of the film version is essentially a parody of that ending, where Fagin's escape into a righteous life is interrupted by the reappearance of his partner in crime, the Artful Dodger. So audiences who had seen it on stage would be like, oh, this is the part where he leaves, and they're like, oh, the Artful Dodger came back and was like, no, we're both going to stay criminals. We're going to do this forever. In the 1922 version... We have Lon Chaney as Fagin and Jackie Coogan as Oliver. It was directed by Frank Lloyd. It has a cute little dream sequence during the food, glorious food titles where Oliver is sleeping and dreaming about food and there's like an animated spoon and bowl of spaghetti dancing above his head. It's like it's only like three frames of animation that are just looping, mm-hmm. but I was surprised to see that uh, like comped in over his head while he sleeps. Was, um, it a, was it a universal thing? Do you know who what studio did it? I don't remember what studio did it. It just makes me think about the studio tour we just took and how they talked about it, that time period that they were uh, they were looking for inspiration. So that's why they did all the monster films because they were all stories in the public domain, like yeah. Dracula and Frankenstein. Well, that makes sense. And Lon and Chaney was a big Universal player. The, so. That that's what I was thinking. Was like yeah. this this was probably also public domain. Yeah, definitely. It's also funny that uh, I noticed in the 1922 version that the title cards with the dialogue occasionally included the actor's name at the bottom so you know which character is talking in the scene. You might expect the characters' names, but I guess the filmmakers trusted audiences enough to know the actors' names in the scene because it would be like Lon Chaney at the bottom corner. Yeah. I was like, that's weird. Well, They're well, crediting it to that character. It wasn't like Lon Chaney was known as as, as an identifiable person well i just mean if you're if you're watching a movie and he's playing a character named fagin mm-hmm. in a story that you already know you would expect it to just say fagin right but because wasn't isn't Lonchini known as like the man of a thousand faces right exactly yeah. <laughs> it's like it's so like it's impossible to recognize him <laughs> yeah it's like i wouldn't know him if, you, if i saw yeah. him um there is an insanely dark moment at the end so when bill sykes jumps off the building and he gets in that version he's hung by the neck instead of being hung around the waist so he actually hangs himself even though the whole film he's had a fear of being hung because he thought that would happen to him for stealing and here he accidentally hangs himself right slipping off the roof but his dog watches him hanging there for a while and then jumps off with him to die (laughs) so they just watch this dog jump off a building and splatter on the concrete under him obviously they don't show the dog hit the ground but you just see the people watch it and then turn away in disgust. In the 1948 version, we have Robert Newton as Sykes and Alec Guinness as Fagin from director David Lean. When Sykes takes Oliver hostage for cover from the angry crowd, that's not from the original story. And director Carol Reed basically borrowed that scene whole cloth from the 1948 version. And this was a contribution that David Lean felt he deserved some recognition for in the credits. He was a little bothered that they reused the scene exactly. Um, And 57 years later, Roman Polanski also borrowed the scene for the 2005 adaptation. In the 1988 Oliver and Company, this was Disney's animated version, which recasts all the characters as cats and dogs in modern-day New York, featuring the voices of Joey Lawrence as Oliver, Billy Joel as Dodger, Cheech Marin, Bette Midler, Dom DeLuise as Fagin, and Robert Loggia as Bill Sykes. But in that, the... the the disconnect between Sykes and Fagin in Oliver Company yeah. seems so much more extreme than yeah. it does in this movie. Yeah, because Bill Sykes is like a huge businessman who yeah. owns yeah. a bunch of companies and Fagin is like just a guy who's renting a dock from him. Yeah. I mean, I guess like he does steal stuff and like I guess that's always nice to have someone who steals for you. Yeah. But 
the, that that relationship doesn't make as much sense as as this relationship it does in Oliver. And also, these dogs are only stealing sausages. They're not out stealing like wallets and stuff to bring back to Fagin. So Fagin is having to steal actual things by himself to give to Sykes. I mean, I think they're supposed to be stealing stuff of value. Do they though? I don't remember. I mean, I just watched it a couple days ago, and I don't remember them ever stealing valuables from anyone. They just go around town taking hot dogs. <laughs> It's just like, you want a hot dog that's been in a dog's mouth, Sykes? Is this enough to pay my rent? In the 2005 Oliver Twist, the Polanski story basically follows the plot of the musical with a few insignificant changes, but I did enjoy the darker tone of some of the dialogue. Do I understand that he asked for more after he had eaten his supper? He did, sir. That boy will be hanged. What? (laughs) Seems excessive. But yeah, that's, uh... That's Oliver, the musical version of Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist, and I love it. I love all the music. I've been listening to it all week in my car, and I've been singing the songs to the kids without them even knowing, like I make them breakfast, and then I say, For what you're about to receive, may the Lord make you truly thankful. (laughs) And they don't say amen because they don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) Well, I'll say that um, I'd never seen this before either, um, and Oliver and Company it yeah. was again my only real connection connection um i i i went in waves of liking and disliking this movie like as as i do with a lot of musicals yeah um i i think i i do like it overall but musicals still generally aren't super interesting to me but they're also really genuinely good songs and i don't i don't think it's just coming from a nostalgic place i think they actually are really great music no, I think the songs are good. Yeah. Having heard them for the first time here, though, I think I realized that I've I've heard some of these in, in places and didn't, sure. and didn't mm-hmm. realize yeah. that they were from Oliver, right? Um, so having heard most of these in context now for the first time, I was like, yeah, this is this is generally good. Um, not not my favorite thing, but it's yeah. good. <laughs> I, I was really nervous going in because they did so much just casual talk singing. Yeah. And I that's the worst for me. <laughs> I I hate musicals where they just sing casual dialogue. Well, wh- where where is that happening? Um like uh at the workhouse? At at the workhouse and okay. then the Boy for Sale. Boy for Sale isn't really a song. Yes it is. That's it, such a great just, song. It's just him singing what he's doing. Yeah, well, but he has the best voice of the whole Richard cast. Richard to an opera. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Literally they uh, don't stop singing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh no, it's not for me. You would hate Hamilton. <laughs> Never seen it. Um but yeah, I, I don't I don't like that. Um I I like movies that have plot and then musical numbers and and like like even like the most recent like uh spirited yeah i mean i think this is what you're talking about still because they're not sing-songing every dialogue scene well that that, again and and yeah yeah, so it was just that beginning that had me really nervous yeah i was like oh god this is gonna be one of those kinds of musicals but (laughs) but then that stops right away and they just have normal conversations and i was like okay this is this is better yeah this is better and and um i wasn't I'm not a big fan of all the songs, but uh, the pageantry of most of them is yeah. is a lot of fun. Like they're uh, getting all those kids choreographed. Yeah, they're all like, very talented dancers. Yeah. Like all these yeah. kids are great performers, except for one, and it's the kid <laughs> who they picked out of five thousand and who couldn't sing or cry or talk right. Yeah, I was pretty pretty impressed by a lot of the 
the child actor dancing. Yeah. Thumbs up for me, for sure. Yeah, I'll give it a thumbs up. Yeah, it's a thumbs up for me. Yeah. Um, This is the same year as 2001 A Space Odyssey and Planet of the Apes. So I don't know if this is the best picture of 1968. I thought uh, 2001 was 69. Uh, the or was it? It, it came out in '68. Okay. The, the Oscar ceremony would right. have been in '68. See that? That's that always gets me. It's like the movie comes out in one year, but the Oscars are yeah. the next year, and that's the year that that's the Oscars the year go they by. Label them. Yeah. 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 Um. So, I I do think for for my own personal preference, 2001 would be the best picture of 1968. But I do love Oliver. I've watched it a lot since childhood i'll probably watch it a lot more often now that i've reminded my brain how much mm-hmm. i love this movie um so i'm probably a little bit biased in its favor but i really do love all the songs um which um i've been singing so far on the podcast but unless you're listening on youtube you're probably going to be hearing the actual clips from the movie but i was going to include a little special treat at the end after the trailer so uh if you stick around for that you can maybe hear some some of my singing um but yeah i love i love oliver and i like this whole cast and i i didn't realize until this viewing that i don't really care for mark lester but everybody else is great i love Mm -hmm. ron moody so much um and maybe it's because i just watched four like terrible fagans yeah um outside of him and actually the i guess the dom DeLuise fagan from oliver and company is not so bad i mean he's a nice guy uh ben kingsley wasn't wasn't great He's a great actor, but they're all evil. Like, they're all mm-hmm. kind of terrible people. Actually, the Ben Kingsley one is, is still nicer than the one in the book. Um, but he just kind of goes crazy at the end. Instead of getting the death penalty, he just gets put in an asylum. And, uh, and he might be awaiting the death penalty at the mm-hmm. end of the, the 2005 version. Because I, I, I skimmed through the Ben Kingsley. Yeah. The um, performance is great, actually, but, and he looks so wonderful. Well, as I say, like the 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 beard is like spot on the same yeah. as Moody's. Yeah, definitely. Um, but he he's doing this r- squinty like mumbly thing uh, yeah. that I that I actually really like. Oh, I think guys, I, I I didn't I did not like his his speaking version. Yeah, I I like the performance that that he gives to the character too, but um, but he's not as nice as the Ron Moody Fagan where he's like. You can tell he's desperately worried about these kids all the time. And the same goes for Dom DeLuise's Fagan because he cares about all these dogs. And and as terrible as his outlook is where it's just like, well, a guy's going to come and kill me tomorrow. And then the dogs like <laughs> lick his face and he's like, oh, you guys, like you sweet pups. I'm so glad you're all around here. Take all of my dinner. I don't need it. I'm going to be dead tomorrow. But yeah. Shall we go into cast and crew? Yeah, I I don't, I don't know where you put this in here, but... I feel like Barbosa from Pirates oh, yeah. is like 100% based off this look. The Ron Moody, <laughs> yeah, because it, it's kind of a scraggly, like, it's it's not a very full beard. It's a very stringy beard. No, it's and it's and it's kind of pointy and like, yeah, it, yeah it's just like, I don't know, they just, it just strikes me as the, those two characters look so much alike. Yeah, definitely. Um, our director here was Carol Reed. He got a Best Director Oscar for this. He also directed The Third Man and Mutiny on the Bounty. He is the illegitimate son of famed 19th century stage actor Herbert Beerbaum Tree. He is also the uncle of actor Oliver Reed. The writer here for the screenplay was Vernon Harris. Would that make him the illegitimate uncle? Uh, <laughs> can you be an illegitimate uncle? I guess. Maybe. I don't know. 
The writer for the screenplay was Vernon Harris, who has script and continuity department credits on The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. The novel here comes from Charles Dickens, who has credits on all the adaptations of A Christmas Carol, Great Expectations, Oliver, Tale of Two Cities, David Copperfield, etc. The writer of the musical was Lionel Bart, who also wrote the title song of From Russia With Love, which is another song that I sing constantly. Mm -hmm. The music arrangements were done by Johnny Green, who, like we said, his daughter Kathy dubs um, Oliver's voice for the singing. Uh, he has Oscar nominations for Fiesta, The Great Caruso, Strauss Fantasy, High Society, Meet Me in Las Vegas, Rain Tree County, Pepe, Bye Bye Birdie, and They Shoot Horses, Don't They? And he has five Oscar wins for Easter Parade, An American in Paris, Overture to the Merry Wives of Windsor, West Side Story, and this. Speaking of overtures, I think it was a really interesting uh, choice in here to do the whole overture at the beginning um, and at the, the That's how most movies used to do it. That's, yeah. that, I've seen uh, 2001 at the Cinerama Dome and they did that. They, that did, a, they did a full like five minute overture. Yep. Yeah. Which Before is, the movie and at well, the intermission. That is very much what you do for a musical. Right, like, exactly. You, yeah. you know, while people are filtering in, mm-hmm. you, you, do, you do your overture so yeah. people have time to sit down and- you know, and and then your lights come up and you you start your your thing, but it's a little unusual, I think, to do it in a movie. But they just like like you are over black, and I was almost yeah. certain in this movie that I'm like, oh, something's wrong with the picture here because yeah, I'm no. seeing nothing for this whole overture. No, it's an old fashioned way to do it, but these movies that are almost three hours long, that was how they broke it up for audiences so people could hit the restroom and come back and finish the movie. Yeah. E- even Star Trek: The Motion Picture in '79 did a full uh, overture of Ilya's theme before yeah. before the movie starts. But so it does, they're like, you're slowly zooming into a spaceship and then they they stop for 20 minutes and you come back and you're just slowly zooming into a spaceship <laughs> again for the second half of the movie. Uh, that happens a lot in Star Trek the motion picture. But at least in for the motion picture, you're not over black, you're over a star field. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah which I thought was interesting choice here to, to do it over black, almost like you're in a theater and you're not right. seeing anything yet. Yeah, no, I, it's definitely like built to be that way so that you're not missing anything you're just there's just music to get you back into the story cinematographer oswald morris was the dp on the 56 moby dick the guns of navarone lolita the taming of the shrew and after this scrooge fiddler on the roof sleuth man with the golden gun and equus and so far on the show we've had him for the whiz just tell me what you want and the great muppet caper we'll see him next for his final credit in the dark crystal editor ralph kemplin previously cut the african queen moulin rouge Day of the Jackal, The Omen, The Great Muppet Caper, and The Dark Crystal. Ron Moody played Fagin here. He was Prime Minister Rupert Mountjoy in The Mouse on the Moon and Vora Bjorninov in Mel Brooks's The Twelve Chairs. Shaney Wallace played Nancy. She was Lady Mouse in The Great Mouse Detective. Oliver Reed played Bill Sykes. He appeared earlier this season in the dual role of Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype for a Minnesota review and in a Patreon request for Burnt Offerings. We've also seen him in Lion of the Desert and Condor Man. He was in The Devils, which lost our Patreon poll for that month, and The Who's Tommy, but as I've explained on this show before, my favorite role from him has to be Vulcan in Terry Gilliam's The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. He's also in The Brood, Gore, and The Pit and the Pendulum, and the character of Bill Sykes has a song called My Name in the stage version, but it was cut out after concerns that Oliver Reed's singing might not be up to snuff. But here's a little clip of the missing song from the original soundtrack of the 2009 revival. Strong men tremble when they hear it. They've got cold 
close enough to fear it. It's much blacker than I smear it. Nobody mentions my name, which made It's actually hard to make the song sound good because Bill Sykes' voice is gravelly and mm. the whole song is sung very low, so it's hard to maintain a note in it. But um, there you go. Actually, it's funny, too, because um, we mentioned that Terry Gilliam reused the sets for Jabberwocky. Um, and also, whenever the horn started before she starts singing It's a Fine Life, mm-hmm. when it's like, it would always remind me of the, what will become of the Baron. <laughs> but uh, it's different, different notes, but close enough that it was familiar. Harry Seacombe played Mr. Bumble, or Bumble. He's Bjornstern Bjornsson in Song of Norway and Stanley Evans in Sunstruck. He was also in the cast of The Goon Show with Spike Milligan and Peter Sellers, where they got their starts. His son, Andy Seacombe, does the voice of Watto in The Phantom Menace, <laughs> using yet another young boy for slave labor. My trick's gonna work on me. Only money. Mark Lester played Oliver. Lester has said that he and all the kids were frightened of Oliver Reed, who remained in character for all of their interactions, by which I mean he acted exactly like Oliver Reed the whole time. That, what I was going to say. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> he just, just he's himself. in character as himself. He actually <laughs> murdered Shaney Wallace on set. He also plays Joe in Black Beauty and Christopher Coombs in Whoever Slew Auntie Rue. Mark Lester and Jack Wilde would reunite a couple years later, co-starring in Melody, 1971. Mark Lester's pay for this film was put into a trust by his parents, and when he withdrew the money at the age of 18, he went out and bought a Ferrari with it. He now works as an osteopath. He is the godfather, and probably biological father, of Michael Jackson's children. He donated sperm. He was a sperm donor to the conception of Michael Jackson's children. Paris Uh. and Blanket or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And they look like him. You look at side-by-side pictures of them and him. So was he Michael Jackson's osteopath and they were just like, hey, can I have some of your sperm? I don't, I mean, he looks like the kind of kid that Michael Jackson would hang out with in this movie, right? Doesn't he look yeah. like a like Macaulay, Macaulay Culkin, Culkin type? <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's got that cute little angelic face. And I think Michael Jackson was like, I want to befriend this sweet angelic seeming child and I want my children to look like that. So can I have your sperm to make children with? Like this this is just this is, me trying this is to a decide. Lot of weirdness yeah. but that's going on. Mark here. Lester has in when he's been asked about it, he says, Look, I don't want to talk about this, but regardless of what happened between us, he raised them. So they're his children. And and so he kind of like in a way is admitting to the fact that he did make this donation to him. And that regardless of whether or not they are his children biologically, they were Michael Jackson's kids and Michael Jackson raised them and he's not a part of their family. Jack Wilde played the Artful Dodger. He became a sort of teen idol after this film's release. He also played Jimmy, the human on HR Puff and Stuff, the one and only human of the cast. Um, it's the part I was born to play, baby. <laughs> Joseph O'Connor played Mr. Brownlow. He's the voice of Erskex, the narrator in The Dark Crystal. Leonard Rossiter played Sourberry. He was Dr. Andre Smyslov in 2001 A Space Odyssey the same year. He's also Captain John Quinn in Barry Lyndon. Kenneth Cranham played Noah Claypole. He was Jimmy Price in Layer Cake and Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel in Valkyrie. Megs Jenkins played Mrs. Bedwin. She's Mrs. Gross in The Innocents. Yeah, I, as soon as 
as soon as she came on the screen and I heard her talking, it's like, God, what do I know her <laughs> from? Because she, because she plays kind of a, a housemaid. Yeah, in the very similar role. Well. Yeah, and it's funny because she also played Mrs. Gross in another adaptation of Turn of the Screw. Oh, interesting. Uh, so it's just like it's a, it's a, she fits the character. James Hader played Mr. Jessup. I think that's the bookshop owner. He was Doctor Selby in 1972's Burke and Hare. Elizabeth Knight played Charlotte. She was Bertie in McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Edwin Finn played a pauper in the workhouse. He's back later this season as the supreme being's face in Time Bandits and Publius in Julius Caesar. Joe Cornelius played man and crowd uncredited. Do you know who Joe Cornelius is? I, 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 I don't. He played Trog oh. in Trog. <laughs> he was in here just on set hanging out. Terrence Donovan played a policeman in the Consider Yourself segment, uncredited. He was Captain Hunt in Breaker Morant. He's back right around the corner as Mr. Brown in Strange Behavior. John Hewood played flute-playing man in Tree. That's a guy that's in the tree in the park during the Who Will Buy segment. He's an inventor in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Elaine Page played Urchin. She made her West End debut in 1968's production of Hair, Later, she originated the roles of Ava Perone in Evita and Grizabella in Cats for Andrew Lloyd Webber. As a result, many of her credits are for her recording of Memory from Cats. Oh. Nosher Powell played Man, uncredited. He shows up later in Krull and Willow. Fred Wood plays an onlooker in the crowd, also uncredited. So far, we've seen him always uncredited in Breaking Glass, Elephant Man, Superman 2, Monster Club, Clash of the Titans, History of the World Part 1, and Dragon Slayer. Um... So he lives, I'm guessing, in Britain somewhere. Helen Worth played an urchin. She is Mary Ash in six Doctor Who episodes. Gail McIntyre, Gail Platt, and Gail Tilsey in 4,187 episodes of Coronation Street. Those are all the credits I have for this one. It's Coronation Street. <laughs> it's Coronation Aww. Street. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I see the urchin, I was like, I just like a buddy hack it. It was like, he said sea urchins. I said street urchins. Why would I say sea urchins? <laughs> <laughs> what did he say? What did he say, people? <laughs> he said street urchins. All right. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm I made sorry. a mistake. It's also one of the weirdest scenes because Buddy Hack is making this weird face at yeah. John Glover the whole time. <laughs> I think that's everything for Oliver. Thanks again to Justin Aylett for their generous contribution to the show. If there's any other title you'd like us to review, our top Patreon tier includes a custom review of any pre-1980 title. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd. Or as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing whatever you choose. We leave you now with a trailer for Oliver. Lisa... I want some more. More? The word for Oliver is more. It's much, much more than a musical. Oliver, the internationally famed stage triumph, now acclaimed by the international press as a monumental screen experience. I'm reviewing the situation. Can a fella be a villain all his life? Ron Moody is fake. Oliver Reed is Bill Sykes. Harry Seacombe is Mr. Bumble. Shady Wallace is Nancy. Mark Lesnar is Oliver. Jack Wilde has the artful dodger. He's gonna be a right little Bill Sykes. <laughs> 
you'll hear 14 marvelous numbers, including As Long As He Needs Me and... One boy, boy for sale, he's going cheap. How much then? Only seven guineas. How much? That or thereabout. Fine boy, boy for sale, he's yours to keep, for one thousand pennies, you can work it out. That's four pounds, three and four, slightly under four guineas, knocked down from seven guineas, three pounds, ten shillings, three pounds what, sir? Certainly not, sir. Small pleasures, small pleasures, who would deny us these? Gin toddies, large measures, no skimping if you'd please. I rough it, I love it, life is a game of chance. I never tire of it, leading a merry dance. If you don't mind having to go without things, it's a fine life, it's a fine life, though it ain't all jolly old pleasure out ends. It's a fine life, it's a fine life, when you got someone to love. You forget your care and strife. Let the prudes look down on us. Let the wide world frown on us. It's a fine, fine life. <laughs>